a dour, unhappy man who believed the gods had singled him out for a life of bad luck. Takei wished now he had not given in to Ahote's pleas to marry Hoshitiwa. Wished he had a matchmaker find a girl in another settlement, one not as pretty and clever as Sihumana's daughter. Takei's only hope was that this was just a phase, a matter of Ahote wanting something he couldn't have. Some men were like that, hungering for the out of reach, like desiring a married woman. Hoshitiwa was forbidden to Ahote right now, and that fired the blood. But once he could have the girl any time he wanted, day or night, the fever would leave him. Or so Take prayed. As Ahote's hungry gaze strayed again to the lovely Hoshitiwa sitting in the sunshine, her poppy-red tunic a bright warm beacon, his boy's body stirring with the man's desires, as he thought of his coming nights as a husband, another sharp pinch on his arm brought him back to his lesson, and he recited. And then the people knew the spring of abundant hunting when elk came down from the plateau to offer themselves as food. The symbol painted on the wall was an elk with arrows in its body. The last symbol on the wall was a circle with six lines trailing it, marking the sighting of a comet streaking the sky the summer before. No new symbols had been added since, because nothing of significance had taken place. As he recited for his father, Ahote wondered what new symbol would be added next, continuing the clan's long history. Far down the highway, which cut through the vast plain and between plateaus, the runner fell, his right knee cracking in pain. As he struggled to his feet, he felt in the paving stones of the wide highway the vibrations of the thundering feet of the advancing army. He swallowed in terror, tasted blood and salt on his tongue. The cannibals were coming. Hoshitiwa looked over at the handsome Ahote at the memory wall, his sinewy body gleaming in the sun as he wore only a loincloth, and her heart swelled with love and hope. Life was good. Spring flowers bloomed everywhere. The nearby stream ran with cool, fresh water and fish. The clan was healthy and prosperous. And Hoshitiwa, 17 years old, was looking forward to her wedding day. She sat in the sunshine at the base of the cliff, spinning cotton for her bridal costume. She sat cross-legged as she twirled a wooden spindle up and down her thigh, deftly plucking clean fibers from a basket filled with carded cotton, and adding them to the growing thread that would be dyed and woven into a ribbon for her hair. All around her, the clan was going about the daily business of living. The farmers planting corn, women tending cook fires and watching the children, and the potters creating the rain jars for which her clan was most famous. As she spun her cotton, Hoshitiwa did not know that on the other side of the world, a strange race of people had named this cycle of the sun the year of our Lord 1150. She was unaware that they rode on the backs of beasts, something her own people did not do, and used a tool called a wheel to transport goods. Hoshitiwa knew nothing of cathedrals and gunpowder, popes and crusades, nor did she know 
that those strange people gave names to their canyons and rivers and hills. Hoshitiwa's settlement had no name, nor did the nearby stream, nor the mountains that watched over them. Many years in the future, another race would come to this place and apply names to everything they saw and walked upon. Two hundred miles to the southeast of where Hoshitiwa felt warm sun on her arms, a town would be established and called Albuquerque. The area surrounding it, for 120,000 square miles, would be known as New Mexico. The young bride did not know that centuries hence, strangers would roam the land to the north of her settlement and call it Colorado. There was only one place, far away in the southeast, that she knew by name. Center Place, so-called because it was the hub of trade and communication for her people, and an important religious center. Even so...